let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. We are almost through uh, the entire Bible. Can you believe that? We started uh, a while back in uh, doing Old Testament survey, and then uh, back around uh, January or so, we started into New Testament survey, and just not going verse by verse through each of these books, but trying to give uh, a little bit of its background, its history, its context. And uh, one of the keys in understanding Scripture and understanding it rightly, and we've said it so often before, is context. And one of the, the great problems that we face today uh, in doctrinal error and in problems that are uh, wrong as far as um, men teaching and handling the Scriptures um, as novices, perhaps, or, or incorrectly, is the fact that uh, we, don't, we don't take the time uh, to sit and study Scripture and to look at its context and to, and to prayerfully ask for God's guidance to help us have absolute understanding of it. God gave us the Bible to reveal things to us. And it is not His desire to hide them. It's His desire for us to know them. And uh, we struggle oftentimes uh, with understanding some things because uh, of the nature of our uh, flesh and our finite minds uh, trying to understand things that sometimes uh, are of an infinite nature, from an infinite God, and uh, a God that is uh, far above, the Bible says. His thoughts are far above our thoughts, and His ways are far above our ways. And so sometimes we need His help. In fact, I would say this, that every time we come to Scripture, it ought to be preceded with a season of prayer asking Him to help us understand it. Uh, and uh, rightfully so, I believe. And so we've spent some time uh, dealing with each of these books, trying to give a context, a setting, uh, where it was written from, who it was written to, what were the situations that were uh, at, going on at that time, why was that writing necessary uh, for those people for that time, uh, who it was written from as far as the human author. Uh, we know, of course, that all Scripture was given by inspiration of God. And every word of it was God-breathed, but God used human men uh, as the instruments to write them. And so it helps us to know a little bit about these men. Colossians is probably, <coughs> excuse me, if I had to pick one book in Scripture that pointed to the preeminence of Christ, I would probably say that Colossians is the book that I would go to. It is, it is the premier book of Scripture that elevates the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and uh, probably deals with this subject of the preeminence of Him more than any other Scripture. Uh, that's, there's, there may be some people say, well, what about this book or that book? And that's fine. I, I like to look at what Paul has written here, and the subject matter is really focused around this idea of Christ being fully sufficient. And by the way, uh, we need to come to a, 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 an absolute founding of our faith in that issue, the full sufficiency of Christ. Where we start getting off on doctrinal errors when we begin to say, I need something more than I find in Scripture. I want some new thing. I want, I want some new doctrine. I want some new revelation. Uh, or I want something spectacular that nobody has ever heard before. And these things begin to cause us to try to have things that are not uh, are not solid doctrine. Uh, we find this going on drastically in our world today uh, in a lot of these uh, televangelist ministries, the Word of Faith movement, the New Apostolic Reformation group. 
they are constantly seeking for some new word, some new spectacular thing that they can write a book on or that they can uh, teach to people and say, now, the Bible doesn't say this, but God gave this to me. Uh, folks, that, is, that should never be the case, and that is the result of a people who do not believe in the full sufficiency of Christ. I, I've said it so many times over the years that there are a few times that God may bring us in our lives to the place where He is all that we have left. And I have found this to be true in every situation, that when we get to that point, we find that He is all we ever needed to begin with. And it took us getting to that point to have that realization. Christ is fully sufficient for everything in my life. This book is fully sufficient. And uh, so as we get to uh, Colossians, we're going to look at... uh, Several things here. It's four chapters long. It can easily be divided into two halves. The first half, Paul deals with the doctrine of the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, the second half of um, the, the book is a charge to the church at Colossae to be fully surrendered to Christ and to fully know Him more. Uh, Paul's desire um, was for the church at Colossae to deepen their knowledge of, of Christ. And the reason for this was they had grown stagnant in their spiritual growth. And the reason they had grown stagnant in their spiritual growth was there were some heresies, some false teachers that had come in. And it seems like most of the letters Paul writes is because there were false teachers, even in the first century, coming in and teaching doctrine that was wrong and Paul had to address it and correct it. And so for us to sit here and say, boy, I can't believe we have such churches in, in teaching wrong doctrine in the day that we live in. Folks, it's no new thing. Satan has always tried to corrupt the truth of God's Word. And he's done it from the very beginning. And Paul combats this. And most of his letters are used to combat this. What was happening in the church at Colossae? Colossae used to be a very large uh, city of Commerce, a very important city. Uh, it was in the region, if you, if you geographically, it was in the region of the seven churches that, uh, that uh, John wrote the letters to, that, uh, that God dictated to him in the book of Revelation. So the seven letters to the seven churches, those were all in a certain geographical area. Uh, and Colossae's right in that group, in that geographic location. It's about 100 miles uh, away from Ephesus. Uh, but in that same region, uh, close by Laodicea and some of those uh, cities. And it was one of the four, uh, what we call prison epistles, uh, where Paul wrote during his first imprisonment at Rome, uh, along with Philippians, Ephesians, and uh, Philemon. And so we have four uh, Paul's epistles, uh, including Colossians, that were written while he was in prison. But uh, Colossae used to be a very important city, a very big city. Is given to idolatry, of course. It was a Gentile uh, country and nation and uh, city, and it was uh, given to idolatry for many, many years. And uh, by the time Paul comes on the scene, uh, the city had diminished. It had gone down and declined, and it was fairly a minor city at this point. At the time of Paul's writing, it was not a real important city. Some other cities had risen up and, and kind of taken its place. Uh, Colossae is the only church that Paul never visits. Uh, it was started by Epaphras, and Epaphras was a young man that more than likely Paul led to the Lord in his third missionary journey. Uh, he went to Ephesus and was there. Uh, he had about a three-year missionary journey there, 
and was at Ephesus the, the majority of that time. He was there for a long period of time and had led Epaphras to the Lord. Epaphras then takes the message of the gospel and he plants other churches. And Colossae is one of those churches. And uh, so Paul writes to the church at Colossae to try to help them with some doctrinal error that is coming in. And there were four things that uh, specifically they were trying to mix with the truth of the gospel. And, um, and by the way, we always get in trouble when we try to bring things that are outside of Scripture into the church house and mix it with what the Bible says. It will always be a problem. And so they were uh, trying to bring in Greek philosophy and uh, logic and reasoning to some uh, questions that they had about some doctrines. They were babes in Christ uh, at this point. Paul's desire is for them to deepen their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in their grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, they were being led astray by the philosophy of men. Uh, and the Greeks were really strong in that area of philosophers. They were following after some of the Greek philosophers and trying to incorporate some of their reasoning on religious matters, uh, along with uh, trying to stay true to the gospel message. And uh, so they have some false teachers coming in, rationalizing some things and, and making, justifying some, some things that were contrary uh, to what God wanted them to do. The other uh, thing was they had uh, uh, Jewish tradition that they were trying to keep mixed in. So a lot of the Old Testament practices, uh, the legalism that was there by uh, the Judaizers that would say uh, you still have to be uh, doing all the sacrifices, you still have to be doing all of the temple worship, they were trying to bring that bondage to the church and say you have to continue to do these things uh, in order to uh, be right with the Lord, in order to uh, uh, be a, a right church. But one of the most damaging things, I think, at the Church of Colossae was they also tried to bring in Oriental mysticism. And it was part of uh, this, this occult-type thing, this, this, the, the powers of, uh, of darkness. And Paul addresses this in, in this book um, because there was such an issue with this. And by the way, I, I've spent some time in the last year, we, we did a, a whole series, uh, a number of weeks, and if you weren't here for it, on the Word of Faith movement and its deceptiveness and, and the things that they're doing that are so anti-God and anti-Bible. And we do it as a warning because I've seen so many uh, of, of folks that come from good, solid Baptist churches and because we're not grounded in our doctrine, uh, oftentimes the people that fill the churches of this, uh, the, the, the Word of Faith uh, megachurches are proselytes from the, the Baptist churches because they don't know their doctrine well. And they begin to follow after things that are exciting to them. Uh, there's an entertainment factor that's involved. There's the spectacular, and it appeals to the flesh. And... I will say this. You say, well, how do you counter that? We should never try to counter that or compete with it. What should happen is the power of God ought to fall on a church and fill a church to where God is doing a work in the hearts of people. And I'll tell you, there is no substitute for that. There's not enough entertainment the world has to offer that would draw a man from a place where God is doing a work, where His power is doing something to stir the hearts of people. And so we need to be praying, Lord, not give us a better praise team or give us a better preacher that's 
uh, more athletic or has more hair or has a better charisma about him. We need to pray, Lord, send your Holy Spirit's power on this place. Let His presence be felt very strongly here. Let, let God be doing something here. We need to be praying for those things. And there's no doubt that when we come together as, as a church, that God comes with us. We are His temple. But longing to see Him move with unfettered power. And by that I simply mean this. When God doesn't move in power, oftentimes it's because we have quenched Him. It's because of something that we have in our lives that are prohibiting Him from doing the things He longs to do in a church. And folks, we've gotten to the place where our churches have become dead, not because we haven't had enough entertainment value, but because we've lacked the power of God resting upon it. And because of that, a counterfeit group have come in and tried to bring something spectacular, something appealing to the flesh, and it's drawn people away. One of the biggest churches that is right now the absolute most influential church in all of the world. I mean, literally, this church is having an impact all over the world. It's had an impact right here in Festus, Missouri. There are churches that follow after this group, and it's the Bethel Church out of California. Some of you may or may not have ever heard of them. Bill Johnson's the pastor out there. I've been trying to study some things about their movement and some things that are going on out there to warn some of our people. And they are, they are dabbling in this thing of mysticism. They've had a woman by the name of Judy Franklin that's been an associate out there. She's not there as an associate anymore. But they have a ministry, a college of spiritual, um, spiritual gifts and how to, how to harness spiritual gifts. And this woman, Judy Franklin, writes, uh, has written a book on uh, the physics. Of, it's called The Physics of Heaven is the title of it. And she went for several years and to uh, a place that, that dealt with New Age occult mysticism. <coughs> and she believes that the occult mysticism group have stolen from us things that we should be doing by faith. Speaking in tongues. Entertaining spiritual guides. Having visions. Folks, these are all mysticism. These are things dabbling in the occult. And they're teaching their people. In their church. And you say, well, Pastor, that's bad, but how does that affect me? That movement is the most famous movement in this world today and is rapidly spreading, not only here in the United States, but across the world. And the sad thing is, there are churches that are solid churches, that are Bible believing churches, that are looking at a ministry like that and seeing how well they are being prospered and saying, they must be doing it right. I'm going to do what they're doing. And, folks, it is certainly not of God. They're dabbling in this mysticism. And it is not something new. This was happening in the church of Colossae all the way back in Paul's time. They were trying to bring in uh, these spirit guides and teach people how to have spirit guides. Uh, how to empty their heart, their, their minds and, and just let, let whatever happens come into them. Folks, that's a dangerous place to be. Dangerous place to be. I know who lives inside of me. I want the Holy Spirit to have control of me. I don't want to just empty my mind and let whatever happens to my mind come into being. I don't want to sit here and call some spirit guide by name and try to get some spirit guide to give me some vision. I don't need more than what Christ offers me because He is fully sufficient. And these folks are seeking these new things. And this is what Paul is addressing in the church at Colossae. Uh, they, they deal with... Uh, 
this idea of self, uh, this extreme and severe uh, self-deprivation. Uh, they they uh, at, just go over and above trying to deprave, deprave the body of things, thinking that it draws them closer to God and gives them greater holiness. Um, we see a lot of that being taught uh, back in the uh, the times of uh, the Dark Ages. The Roman Catholic Church did a lot of this about uh, trying to uh, to to bring the body. I mean, they they would have people put hooks, flesh hooks, in their garments and and cause it to rip the flesh and and to do things to deny uh, things to the body. And, and they believed that by doing that, it brought them closer to Christ. And these were things that were being taught, these four, these four main areas of heresy that were being taught by false teachers in the church at Colossae. And so Paul says, look, it's a, it's the problem with all of these is you do not understand the full sufficiency of Christ. You don't understand His preeminence in the church. And so he begins in the first two chapters uh, dealing with this. So let's look at several of these. I'm going to uh, try to go through as quickly as we can. I've got several scriptures to look at today, so keep your Bibles handy. Let's start in chapter number 1, and we'll begin, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to begin, uh, let's start in verse number 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, now that's not M-E-A-T, but M-E-E-T. We don't use that, it's an older English word, we don't use that in common language much anymore, a few people do. But the word meet here means suitable, suitable, alright, so... When we come across that word, if you don't know what that means, that's what it deals with. That it is meat. It's complementary to it. helps complete, if you will. These types of ideas are around this word. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet. He's made us suitable. He's made us proper. We are now uh, capable of to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. How did He do that? He did that by the redemption of us. By the shed blood of His own Son. By saving us from our sin, He's made us suitable for these things. He's made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. So knowing what they were battling now in the church, when we read something like this verse, we understand why Paul is starting to address this. He says, who hath delivered us? Who, who did it? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that delivered us from the power of darkness. This occult mysticism that's going on in the church, Christ has delivered you from that, is what He's saying. And hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin, who is the image of the invisible God, the first point of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by Him and... What are the next two words here? For Him. And He is before most things. Is that what your King James Bible says? No, mine either. What does it say? It says He is before what? All things. And by Him all things consist. Not only did He create everything... Have you realized this, that every moment that we have, every second that ticks by, God is also sustaining that which He created. He's holding it all together. And there's going to come a day where He's going to take His hand off of it. And the Bible says it's going to all melt with the fervent heat. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, we need to understand, God is preeminent in creation. He made us. He continues to sustain His creation. And the Bible tells us this in verse number 18, not only is He preeminent in creation, but the Bible says, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, how many? All things. I was talking to Brother Cedric yesterday. And uh, you know what the word all means in Greek? All. It means everything. It's all there. There's no, no better word to be used here. It's almost like God has preserved without error every word that He intended in this book, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? That in all things, He might have the what? The preeminence. He is preeminent in creation. Can I tell you this? He is preeminent in our lives and in the church. He's above all. Everything that exists, exists by Him and for Him. Paul is establishing right at the get-go these things that were error that we're going to look at in chapter 2 in just a moment. These things that were error that were creeping into the church. Paul is, Paul is, I mean, he doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the point, doesn't he? He starts off right away in chapter 1. Christ has delivered you from the power of darkness. What are you doing messing around with it again? You shouldn't have any business. Christians shouldn't have any business doing those things. <coughs> so he starts here in dealing with the supremacy of Christ. He speaks in verses 15 to 18, chapter 1, of his supremacy in creation. He speaks in 19... As we read down in verse number 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him uh, should all fullness dwell. Now, let me just say this. There's a teaching going around, and it's beginning to gain some traction in good churches. Because there have been some doctrinal false teachers out here that have taught that when Christ came to this earth, He was no longer God. And He became only all man. Can I tell you this? Our Bible teaches that while he was all man, he still retained his godness. The Bible says that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That means in his earthly body, he was still all God, even though he was all man. It's very important we understand this. Uh, Brother Wayne, would you mind poking your head out front and just checking? There's some things going on out there. I'm not sure if it's people coming to church or something's going on. I've seen two or three people kind of run by and check by. I apologize for interrupting, but it just seemed kind of odd. I don't normally see that type of thing. Uh, But anyway, uh, so we need to understand these things. And so he deals with this in verse 19. And uh, verse 20, uh, he says, And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. The full sufficiency of Christ. He's reconciled all things. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? In the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable, and reprovable, unreprovable in His sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, 
and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and that which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. He speaks here of the full sufficiency of Christ, what Christ has done by redeeming us. Oh, what a wonderful truth. What a wonderful truth. And so he speaks of the supremacy of Christ in the, in the work of redemption. Very foundational. Because he's finishing up here by establishing the, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. And now he moves uh, into, um, let's start in verse 28. He's going to move into chapter 2, but we're going to get a running start into it, if you will. Uh, in fact, let's go back to verse... Uh, Let's go back to verse number 25. We'll just continue where we left off reading and move into chapter 2. I think it'll be good. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. That's the mystery of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the one that gives the Christian hope. And it's not when we talk about hope, and I said this a few weeks ago and explained this to you, the hope that the Bible talks about is not the hope that we use oftentimes today where we say, well, I sure hope this happens. But it is a hope that is given to us by the, by the precious promises that God has already given. And they haven't happened yet, but we have hope because He's promised it to us. I gave the illustration a few weeks ago. My mom's car died, and uh, she was struggling. Boy, she was struggling. She was fretting and wondering how in the world she was going to get a car. And I called her one night after I had already gotten her a car. But she didn't know it yet. I was going to surprise her with it. And uh, I had gotten her a car, and I called her up one night, and uh, she said she was just, uh, at, I mean, she's sobbing on the other end of the phone. I thought she was going to have another stroke or a heart attack. And I, I said, Mom, it'll be okay. You just need to trust the Lord. You know how we do, trying to get her to calm down. And I said, yeah, go, to, go to bed, get you a good night's rest. She said, Greg, I can't even sleep. I'm so worried. Couldn't sleep last night. And I said, you gotta, you got you to gotta go on to bed. It'll be okay. And trying to let her know. And it didn't help her any. And my sisters talked to her a few minutes after I did. This was about 8 o'clock at night. And after my sisters got off the phone, they texted me, both of them, and said, Greg, you really need to think about going ahead and telling her. Mom's, mom's just about to die here. We're not sure she's going to, what's going to happen here. So I finally called her up. I said, Mom, I didn't want to tell you. I was trying to surprise you, but I already got you a car. And the first thing she said was, how many miles does it have? <laughs> but you know, literally, and I, I don't, mean, don't, don't miss the point for the illustration. Immediately, she was at peace. She went from being distraught. Now, she still shed tears, but they were no longer tears of worry and anxiety. They were now tears of joy at what God had done. And for the next four days, because it took me about four more days to get down there, I think, four or five days from the time I told her. You know, she slept well every night. Not because, now follow this, not because the car was there, but because the promise of the car had been made. And it gave her hope because she trusted the one that made the promise. 
Can I tell you this? The hope that we have in Christ is not wishful thinking. It is the hope that is given because we know the One who made the promise. And we trust it. And it lets us have peace. And we have hope. Now notice as he says here in verse number 28, and we're we're probably going to be two weeks on this book. It's a small book. I hate to be two weeks on it. But there's so much good in it. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as as have not seen my face in the flesh. So this is how we know that (coughs) Paul has not seen the church at, uh, at Colossae, and there's no record in Scripture that we have that he ever goes there. Uh, but the Bible says this, that their hearts might be comforted, knit together in love, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should what? Beguile you with enticing words. There was the Greek philosophers that were coming on the scene. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And as ye, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. And you see, by knowing what the church at Colossae was battling, how this so applies to them. All of a sudden, as we read these verses, they jump off the page to us. Boy, Paul is addressing those issues one at a time. He says this in verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through what? Philosophy and vain deceit. There it is. He's telling them, beware. These, this Greek philosophy you're trying to mix with biblical truth. Beware of it. It's going to spoil you. It's going to cause you to have something rotten in the midst of it. <clears throat> Notice he also says this. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. There's the Jewish traditions he's warning them about. He's telling them to beware of these things. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of the principal of all principality and power. He begins in verse ten to introduce Oriental mysticism and the things they were starting to dabble in. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins uh, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him. Now notice this in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead, and you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, the full sufficiency of Christ. I need nothing else save Christ alone. I don't need the philosophy of men. I don't need their rationalization. I don't need their reasoning. I don't need their logic. I just need Christ. I don't need the legalism of the law, 
the practice of traditions. I just need Christ. I don't need super extra biblical visions and words. I don't need mysticism and the occult. I simply need Christ. Why? Because He's the one that took all of this that used to be dead in me and He has quickened it and made it alive. And He took all these things that were against me, all these ordinances, all these, these things that were against how I lived. The Bible says that He blotted them out. He took them out of the way, nailing them to His cross. Look with me in verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers. Now, what is he speaking of when we deal with principalities and powers? In the book of the uh, book of um, uh, I think it was it was in Ephesians, where it talks about the spiritual warfare, or Philippians. Uh, he says we don't we we're us not against flesh and blood, but against what principalities and powers. He he contrasts here. We're not. Dealing with flesh and blood, we're dealing with principalities and powers. He's dealing with the spiritual realm, if you will. Spiritual warfare. Brother Cedric was telling me just last week he got to go to a a, a conference dealing with the fact that daily we are involved in this spiritual warfare. Now notice what he says here in verse number 15. And having what? Spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. And he goes on to talk about some of the traditional things that they were having to be held to. And I tell you this, the Bible tells us, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Yes, we're involved in spiritual warfare. But we don't look at that as something that we live defeated. We look at that as something that God has given us the ability to be victorious in. He's given us the ability to do this. And he's dealing with the church at Colossae. He says, folks, you're allowing some of these things to creep into the church. Don't do it. Beware of it. Be careful of it. Chapter 3 and 4, we'll deal with maybe the early part of the next. Maybe we'll get that done in, um, in the next book. We'll do maybe next Sunday together. I want to get into chapters 3 and 4. Because in chapters 3 and 4, he deals with, now that you know these things, uh, let's now be yielded to, let's be surrendered to God. And let's live our lives accordingly. All right, let's pray. We'll stand together and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Lord, it's so rich. And Lord, there are sometimes we look at some portions of Scripture, maybe books of the Bible, and we say, well, that's a small book, a minor book. But Lord, the richness of the truth that we find in its pages. Oh, what a glorious thing it is to our hearts, to our minds. We thank you for it. We thank you for the privilege of holding it in our hands and not be fearful of being arrested or persecuted or to have it yanked from us, but that we can have in our hands the inspired, preserved, without error, infallible Word of God for our, our language, our English-speaking people. I pray that You would help us. I pray that You would help us to hold to it, to hunger and to thirst for it, to read it, to study it, to devour it, to feast upon it, that it would be our sustenance. It would be that which keeps us strong in our faith and guides our steps each step of the way that brings comfort where it's needed and grace where it's needed, that brings instruction where it's needed, that establishes sound doctrine in our lives. 
and that reproves and brings conviction where it's needed. Dismiss us now with your blessings. We pray that you'll bless the service to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.